I mentioned when we began going through the book of Exodus that there are a number of ways that people have taken this section of Scripture, the way they've interpreted it, and one that is very common and has become more common. It almost was a a fringe thing in recent years, but now it's become uh, much more mainstream, and I would say unfortunately, but that views the book of Exodus as a template for what is called liberation, and this is specifically political and social liberation. And I said that we would address that in due course, and this really, I think, is the best time to do that in this section of Scripture here. Because it is absolutely true, right? Two things can be true at the same time. It is absolutely true that the book of Exodus teaches us profound lessons about oppression, about liberty, about how governments and people groups can relate to one another. We get an idea of how God feels about things like harsh slavery, how God feels about liberation from slavery and and that sort of thing. But what we're going to draw out tonight from this passage is not only that point, although we will discuss it, but the, the almost untalked about inclusive nature of the Exodus. That as you read through this passage, we're going to see that it is not just Hebrews who left the land of Egypt, but that there were other people that went with them. And God is going to make accommodation for these people in this passage of how they can become a part of the people of God, even as they're leaving the land of Egypt, which can really reframe the way we view this passage. The error of what is called, with a capital L and a capital T, liberation theology, the error that they have is that their scope is far too narrow. They only interpret things in terms of their group, which is why most liberation theology is is plural. We speak of liberation theologies. You have black liberation theology. You have Latin American or Hispanic liberation theology. You have queer liberation theology, which is about homosexuality. We have feminist liberation theology, which is about women. And in pretty much any group you have will have its own brand of liberation theology. And the, you, the remarkable thing is that although these things have a lot of basic tenets in common, when you look at the details, they're so different from one another because it is situational theology. It is theology that is built specific to unique situations which I hope you know by now from studying the Bible for years, that is not how you do theology. You do not craft what you believe about God to your situation. And it completely neglects the Bible's emphasis on love and patience and reconciliation. And the reason for that is, and I I don't want to spend too much time on this. I want to look at more what the scripture says, but liberation theology is a political movement first and foremost. It is, that, it is the, the political movements largely related to Marxism that has come into the church and adapted those theories for the church. And this is nothing new. This has been going on for decades, and it's, it's well documented. But I want to give you an example, and I think this is providential that the Lord brought this across my desk, of a, a popular version of liberation theology that you're seeing now. And you maybe have heard of a guy named Ibram X. Kendi. He wrote a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist and other things like that. One of the uh, forerunners of the woke uh, Black Lives Matter movement, that sort of thing. And we talked about this not long ago, and and I really try to focus on the the doctrinal side of this. And what I warned us about before was that, that whole movement, the whole intersectional critical theory movement, it's, it's got different shadings and areas. Like The concern that I, I was raising to you is that this will not stop at politics. It will not stop at race. It will not stop at gender. It's coming for the church. And the reason we know that, that's not hysteria, is because it is, it is giving new life to this doctrine that has already come into the church and wants to completely redefine the Bible and how we understand the cross in particular. He gave an interview recently, Ibram Kendi, and he, he gave a quote where he said, the job of the Christian is to liberate society from the powers on earth that are oppressing humanity. That sounds fine, and there's even maybe a sense where you can agree with some of that. But this was in contrast to what he says most evangelical, and he very disparagingly says white evangelical, believe that this, that the job of the Christian is to go out and save individuals who are, as he phrases it, behaviorally deficient. We would say sinful. He says behaviorally deficient. He's dismissing that idea. He dismisses the whole idea of sin as one person trying to put their cultural value on somebody else. 
He says the Christians that want to go out and teach people about forgiveness of sins are just trying to oppress people and put them into their own category. When really what he says, the church, notice, not people, not society, not government, the church ought to be doing. And he even says the gospel is, is about dismantling power structures. He said, quote, anti-racists fundamentally reject savior theology. That sounds like a bit of a problem if you know your Bible, isn't it? Reject savior theology. We have a certain fellow that we talk about quite a bit called our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But of course, liberation theology has very little time for the New Testament if you look into it. They very much like the idea of Israel coming out of Exodus or out of Egypt. Very much like the idea of, you know, uh, Ehud and Othniel and the judges that, that killed the oppressive kings. And, but the idea of, of turn the other cheek is they say, well, the, the disciples warped Jesus's message. Not that we have any evidence for that. That's just what's said. He says that Jesus was a radical political, I'm adding political because it's the context, a radical revolutionary. And that the church is to be a place that raises up activists and political revolutionaries. And that that is the gospel. I warned you about this a while ago. I didn't call his name, but he had the the kindness to say these things very publicly, so I'm willing to to say them here. It's not an issue of, well, we don't like this group or that group. These people are dangerous because they are trying to alter the gospel itself. You've heard, you know, they talk white privilege, male privilege, heterosexual privilege. They also include Christian privilege in that. And that the whole idea of Christianity needs to be rethought because it has been oppressive to the world. They reject the idea of sin. They reject the idea of salvation. The only thing that exists is power and its abuses, and our job is to dismantle those. And, of course, they define those abuses and oppressions by the world's standards. There's a long line of philosophers that they adhere to, none of which were believers. What am I trying to say here? Well, first of all, wokeness is nothing new in the church. It's been around. It's been attacked. It's been handled, and it's been dismissed. But, you know, we had some political movements. We had the George Floyd and that whole thing that riled everybody up. And they said, what do I got to do to make sure I'm not racist? And here were these liberation theologians that were ready to fill that gap. And that's exactly what happened. They believe that there is no sin. There is only oppression. That Jesus died not for forgiveness, but to inspire revolution. And in fact, these folks have very little time to talk about the cross either, because the cross doesn't mean anything to you if you don't believe that sin is even a real thing. This is why I brought this up a while ago, because I told you it doesn't stop there. You say, well, can't we be, remember I said these things, can't we be nicer to black folks and nicer to women? Yeah, (laughs) that's great, but do it God's way. You don't let the fox in the hen house, you don't let the liberation theology into the hen house because you want them to help you deal with this issue because they're going to start tinkering with the gospel too. And Paul said, if anybody comes to you teaching any other gospel, let him be accursed. Now, and just in case you think this is only a left-wing problem, the same premise is presently being swallowed by those on the political right as well. The idea that the gospel needs to have much more relevance and action to the political and cultural scene. I've heard people, this was a, a conversation that I I wasn't participating in online, but I watched online where somebody said, Christianity has got to be about more than forgiveness of sins. It's got to be about saving our culture and standing on what we believe in. It can't be about just letting our enemies do whatever they want to us. Well, that's just a hop, skip, and a jump to, I'm not loving my enemies. Right? Jesus, like I said, if you're going to go down that road, Jesus is going to have some things that are really going to be difficult for you to accept. And I warned about that too. That in order to combat this version of errant theology, there will be a corresponding errant theology come up on the other side. That has no time for the talk of salvation. No time for Ephesians 6 where it says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Those people are pure evil. No, the enemy is pure evil. Those people are deceived and they need your help. And I'm very deliberately keeping this out of the the various issues that make up the social and political scene, because as a pastor, I'm not really interested in that. Personally, yeah, sure, but it is not on the same level as this stuff over here. The gospel is the most important thing. We must not commit the error of God's desire to bridge the divide between every class and every race and every nation and every person 
or to downplay God's love for the downtrodden. Because that happens too. We're reacting against those that want to make it all about taking care of the poor and, for, and neglect the forgiveness of sins. But I, I don't really care what either of y'all have to say. I'm only interested in what Jesus has to say. And if my love for the poor makes me seem a little too lefty for you, I'm, I'm okay with that. And if my insistence on the forgiveness of sins makes me seem like a right-wing nut job, well, I'm okay with that too. Because we as Christians are to be removed, detached from all that, and be able to look at things through a biblical lens. And this passage in Exodus illuminates this for us. Because the book of Exodus, is it about liberation? Sure. But it transcends that. It extends to reconciliation. And even to salvation. Because God's plan is too big for our petty little squabbles, isn't it? Isn't God's concerns more important? And if Jesus and his apostles and the prophets that went before laid down what was most important, then don't we need to die to ourselves in order to receive what he has to say, even and especially when it begins to pinch the things that we care about most? I think so. So let's start out with verse 33 and go down to verse 42 of chapter 12. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Here it is now. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night, that is Passover night, is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. All right, well, there it is. This is a section to star in your Bible because this is the Exodus. The actual going out, that's what Exodus means, the way out of the book of Exodus. The last thing we had seen, of course, was the 10th plague when the Lord sent the destroyer, the Bible says, the destroyer, the angel of death, it's sometimes been called, to destroy the firstborn son of every household in the land of Egypt. And that was the first Passover because they put the blood on the door, right? And the angel or the destroyer passed over them, right? And the last thing we saw was Pharaoh gave them permission to go. He called them in the middle of the night and he said, get out of here. He didn't try to hold anything back before he had tried to say, men can go, not the women and children. People can go, not the flocks and herds. Well, now he's not playing any of those games. He just says, go. And you can read it here that the exodus took place in a great rush. It happened quickly. You remember the, Moses had told the people, with your staff in your hand and your loins girded and ready to go. You're not going to have time for the bread to rise. You've got to be ready to go because it happened quickly. The last time we had read, they asked of their neighbors. Do you remember this? That Moses had said, I want you to go to all your neighbors and ask them, hey, we're about to leave. Would you give us whatever gold or silver or clothing, right? You see this in the Bible an awful lot, that clothing was seen as a sign of wealth because it took time to make clothing and you couldn't just go down to Walmart and pick up a new one. So this was a sign of wealth for them. And it, it says here in this passage, they had done that. So this has already taken place. And it says they plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptians had God gave them favor with the people. You might see this as they're a little spooked. Like, yeah, here it is. Take it. Get out of here. We don't want you all to stay anymore. If this is what it takes to get you gone, then get gone. The other passages in the Bible will describe this as the wages of 400 years of servitude. They didn't got paid for any of that work. But the Lord goes, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. 
And I could give great testimonies of times where the Lord has said, I know this has felt like it's been useless, but don't worry. You're going to plunder the Egyptians on the way out of here, and I'm going to take care of you. And they set out, says they go from Ramesses to Sukkot. It is interesting because the word Sukkot is the Hebrew word that is often translated booths or tabernacles. It means shelters. So it is possible that they went to the place where they had to make those booths. They had to take down the tree branches and build up these little huts for themselves in the desert. And the Lord would give them the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths later, where they would spend a week of the year living outside their houses in these things to remind them of that. So there's probably some symbolism there. Maybe this was a name that the Israelites gave to this place later. But we know they're going in a southeasterly direction to get there. And next time, we're going to talk a lot about the route that they would have taken. We're going to talk about where and what the Red Sea is. You look at the map, sometimes it's hard to nail down. And the location of Mount Sinai. Lots of things that are interesting, not super important in the grand scheme of things, but they're still fun to talk about. All you need to know now is they're going in a southeasterly direction. And it notes, as I said, that there was a mixed multitude with them. This is funny because the Hebrew there is, there was an erav rav. And it kind of sounds like the English word riffraff, doesn't it? That's the same kind of idea you should be getting here. A mixed multitude, it's a a rabble. There's a whole lot of other people. You've got 600,000 men plus their family. So millions of people, right, coming out of Egypt. It makes sense why Pharaoh had said, lest they overtake us, we need to enslave them. But not only these pure blood Hebrews, but... You got, you got a bunch of mixed multitude. You got a lot, of, a lot of rabble and riffraff. Everybody else was going with them. There was a lot of people that left Egypt with the Hebrews. Meaning absolutely and definitely some of them were Egyptians. And you can assume there were others of different backgrounds as well. Egypt was the, the metropolis of the world at the time. There would have been tons of different nations there. And we'll come back to that in a minute and how profound that is. But chapter 12, verse 40, announces the end of their troubles in Egypt. They had begun when Joseph was sold into slavery there. He was raised up to be the prime minister of the nation. We believe historically that there was a change of of dynasty there that the Hebrews were caught up in and then were therefore enslaved. But those days are over. And this is just as God had promised Abraham. If you remember Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, this was way before this, hundreds of years. The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment upon the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And isn't that exactly what happened? They were there 430 years. God told Abraham 400. Some people see the 30 years as the life of Joseph. Um, I see that as God's probably giving Abraham a round number, and then we get the more specific number in Exodus. But they were servants. They were slaves there. They were afflicted. But God judged them, and now they're coming out with great possessions. They were broke. They were slaves. And now they're coming out rich. And this is why Verse 42 establishes Passover as a night of watching. It says this was the night that God watched over Israel to deliver them. And he says, so you also from now on will take this ceremony every year to watch and remember. It it catches the idea of being a a vigil, a night-long vigil, although that did not come into the the traditions later on. But it is a very interesting thing to, to think about. Bondage in Egypt was the definitive historical memory for Israel. Everything that followed would be reaching back in some way to what God had done for them in Exodus. Very much like the cross is for you and me. There's been other things that happened that are not insignificant, but the cross is the main thing. Just like for the Israelites. How many times will the Lord from this point on say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord would then lay out what he needed them to do. And he would ask them, why would you leave me? I brought you out of Egypt. We're going to see this referred to so many times in the Old Testament and in the New as well. We're still telling the story. As I've said, there's so many, there's always another movie in production about Exodus, right? Because we still remember. And it is this liberation from slavery that would motivate many of the moral laws that God is going to lay down for the Israelites. 
We will see this as we come to it, but let me give you one example of how God would refer back to their bondage as an explanation of why he was telling them to live a certain way. Let me read Deuteronomy 5, verses 14 through 15. Now, the Sabbath is a day of rest, right? And God gave us a day of rest because he knows we needed a day of rest. But God gives another reason for it here in Deuteronomy 5. He says, The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, here it is, or your male servant or your female servant or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that is a non-citizen. Why not? That your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Why would God tell them to do that? He says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. What is God saying? He says, you remember y'all were slaves for 400 years? You didn't get a day off for 400 years. I'm granting you this. Remember Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man. It was a day off. It was a break. It was a day to rest. And the Lord goes, now don't you think that you're going to be sitting up in your house, taking the day off. Well, meanwhile, your servants or your slaves are out there working seven days a week. Because just as you were slaves, your slaves are not going to be working like you were. And this is just one example among many of how God very much regulated and defined the way that the Israelites were permitted to have slaves and servants. And if it was done according to the way the Lord did it, it would have had no resemblance to the way that we did it here in our country, unfortunately. He intended Israel to be a model of kindness and mercy to all nations, even in their own structures and their civil institutions. Because God says, y'all were beaten down by that system. So when I give you a system, it's not going to be like that. And while the Bible does not smash apart many cultural norms, it does set an example of how you're going to go about participating in them. And slavery is just one example where the Lord goes, all right, if you're going to do this, here's how you're going to do it. And he's going to say, you're going to, I'll give an overview here. It says, number one, they're not going to work every day. Number two, you're not allowed to strike your slave and injure him or her. Number two, if you sexually abuse your slave, you have to marry her and free her. Number three, your slave, or number four, whatever number I'm on. You, your slave can bring a suit against you if you're being oppressed and they can be set free. At the end of every seven years, you have to let them all go. And he says, he makes this very interesting uh, Case in the, in the law where he says, and if a slave loves you so much, they want to stay in your house, here's the ceremony you go through. And you think, why would any slave want to stay under his master? Well, the Lord is saying, I want you all to be so good to these people that they say, can't I just stay with you? Debt slavery was a big, a big thing back then. And the Lord specifically forbade them from engaging in what you'd call the, the slave trade, moving back and forth. They were not permitted to go out and capture people and bring them back to their nations. The Lord would rebuke them for that. The Lord very much regulated that. And there's another very important point that I'm going to get to in a minute. We see this in the New Testament too. The book of Philemon was written because Paul was in prison in Rome and a slave named Onesimus had run away and found him in Rome and gotten saved. And it turns out Paul knew his master. His master was a guy named Philemon who lived in the city of Colossae. And we believe that the letter Colossians and Philemon were sent at the same time to one to the church and one to the individual. And Paul writes to Philemon and says, I have your slave here. And he says in 15 and 16, this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. What is Paul saying? He says, Onesimus has been saved and you're saved too. Says, so I'm going to send him back. And Paul tells us, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but this is your brother now. You, you are to treat him like a brother. And there are lots of instances in the New Testament where they say, if you're going to have slaves or servants, you treat them like brothers. And we think to ourselves, well, What's the point of having a slave? It's supposed to be your brother. Ah, now you're catching on, huh? Why didn't God just smash it? Well, you ought to know that that idea is exactly what did smash the slave trade around the world later on. 
God's plan to overcome evil in the world is through the sanctifying influence of humble saints. Rather than smash the structure, God infiltrates social structures with his people. We go out already dead to the world. And we are content. Paul says, whatever state I'm in, I am able to be content. There were Moravian missionaries that were not permitted to preach the gospel to the slaves in Jamaica. So they sold themselves into slavery so that they go, go and preach the gospel there. And they ended up all dying of disease on that island, if I'm not mistaken. Why would they do that? Because they say, it doesn't matter if we're slave or free. Those people need Jesus. That's how the Lord changes the world. We turn things upside down from within. And we don't like that so much. Because we... Our nation born out of revolution. And if we don't like something, well, we, we get in there and we change it. And we break it to pieces. And there's certainly a place for that. We, but we prefer often to see immediate, violent action. And we say the way that God does it isn't sufficient. There are people to this day saying, if that's the way God wants to handle, if that's the way God tells us to handle these, these people that are marching through our streets and, and threatening my country, well, then I, I don't need Jesus anymore. Or say, if that's the way that God wants us to handle this oppression and that thing, then I don't want Jesus anymore. But like I just said, this is exactly what has done the trick throughout history. That God eradicates evil through erosion. Because God knows you can change the structure, but if you don't change hearts, it's just going to be one hot minute until it comes back. And so God sends his people that over time, don't let the world steal this from us. It was the evangelical Christian church that broke slavery and the slave trade around the world. It was the evangelical Christian church that first began what we call orphanages today because the Romans would, would expose their children and the Christians would go around the city picking up these babies and taking them home to raise them. The Christians were the first ones to begin caring for the sick and the wounded in what we call hospitals. They were the first ones to have universities where you could go and study. This all came from the church. And the world just comes out, well, that just sort of naturally happens. No, it doesn't. Go somewhere where there's been no gospel. Well, that's just their culture, yeah? Well, that's their culture apart from Jesus. When people are captured, not just by the liberation that Exodus lays out, but by the symbolism and the typology of what it means, by the prophecy, you could say, of the book of Exodus, that you and I would be liberated from slavery to sin. We would pass through the waters of baptism. We would come to worship God in the wilderness and come into our promised land of abundant life and later to heaven. Those people change the world. Because we recognize that there is a greater slavery than any kind of dominance or oppression that happens on the social level. Romans 6 says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Saved people, save people. We focus on the most important solution because as Jesus said, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? So to those who want to say, well, the most important thing is that we redistribute wealth. That's what the gospel's got to be about. The Bible tells us with food and clothing we're to be content. Well, we've got to make sure that, that everybody has a chance to vote and everybody has a chance to participate in the political structure. The New Testament was written to people living under an emperor named Nero. And Paul said, submit to the authority that God has put into place. Because the mission that God has sent us out is more important than that. Jesus said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and render to God that which belongs to God. Does Exodus show us God's love for the oppressed? You better believe it does. But you have to remember that the greatest oppression is that of sin. And that Exodus is a prophecy of what Jesus would come to do later on the cross. And that those that have been changed by that cross are the ones who then went on to actually and, and materially liberate other people. Verse 43, let's keep going. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall, shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. 
There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So we have more laws here regarding Passover. And these are especially focusing on who may or may not eat the Passover. Because remember, we have an Arav Rav. We have a mixed multitude. We have the riffraff following along. And Moses might have wondered, Lord... I did not expect to have a bunch of Egyptians follow us out of the land, wanting to follow you and serve you. What do we do with these folks? And God goes, well, if you're going to eat the Passover, it is exclusively for a circumcised Israelite, including their slaves or their bond servants, whatever your translation has. It's about the same thing. But what does he say, though? If you're going to have your servant or your slave eat of it, he'll have to be circumcised. Which means he'll be what, according to verse 48? As a native of the land. Which meant, according to the law that came later, after seven years, that slave was to be freed and sent out with enough money and materials to start his own life on his own. So before you read that and react to it, you've got to know what God is saying here. This is all fine. You're going to bring a slave into your house. You're going to make him just like one of you. This is remarkable. You've got to understand how radical this is. This is a totally different culture where if you, if you ran out of money and you couldn't pay your bills, you might sell yourself or one of your kids into slavery for seven years. But God placed limits on that. And even somebody that was brought in. So all of these laws that people look at, it, well, God said that they were allowed to have slaves. Yeah, but you had to treat them right. And if they wanted, at any time, they could be part of the nation of Israel and be set free to live among the people. That, that is so important that we remember that. Only Hebrews could eat of the Passover. And the Lord has just opened up for anybody who wants to become a Hebrew. An interesting note here that I wish I could preach on more. It says that the Passover lamb was not to have its bones broken. Do you remember that? Does that sound significant to anybody? Jesus Christ did not have any of his bones broken on the cross. John 19.36 says it was to fulfill which had been said, none of his bones shall be broken. Which is referring to this passage here because Jesus is our Passover lamb, remember? Jesus was crucified. It was a method of, of death that did not break any of the bones. Psalm 3420 has a similar verse there. And look at verse 48. This is so important. Like I was saying, if a stranger shall, shall sojourn with you and would keep or wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. This is so important. You've got to get this because people will come and throw the slavery of the Old Testament in your face. Foreigners could convert and become Jews at any time. And if they did, then they were immediately, if they were a slave, on track to be set free. This is so important. With all of these new hangers on, God tells Moses, the Passover is only for the Hebrews, but any other person could become a Hebrew. You could be part of the family, including these Egyptians who had been their slave masters. Are you starting to get this? Imagine if you had been a slave for somebody, for your family, for generations, and God pours out 10 plagues on this family. And then when you go to leave, he says, wait, I'll give you all my gold and all my silver. But if you're going, I want to come with you. I want to be like one of you. I want to live and serve your God. You might say, I don't think so. But God comes in and he says, no, no, no. It's not about that. If they want to come, they can come. And they begin to serve your God. They leave behind everything they have in Egypt. They submit to your laws and live as one of you. Remember, they thought the Hebrews were a filthy, dirty people. right? Hebrew was an insult. Hebrew meant wanderer. It's like calling somebody a gypsy. If the Lord says, if they're willing to leave all that behind and come and follow me, then they can come. Does that sound familiar to anybody else? If you're willing to leave everything and follow the Lord, he'll let you. Even in the Exodus, you can see how God is including people. This is what is so often missed in that liberation theology. God does not like to carve people up by nation and race and all that. Isaiah 49.6, this is a prophecy of the Messiah. It says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth, even to Alabama. 
A light for the nations. Hebrew is goyim. It means Gentiles. It says, my Messiah is too great just to save Israel, just to save one nation. He's going to save every nation. And you're seeing this foreshadowed in the Exodus. Is God judging Egypt? Yes. Is he striking them down, including their firstborn? Yes. But there is a way of escape to leave that and become part of the people of God with all the privileges appertaining thereto. This is so key. What do we learn from this? How does this affect our daily life? I'll tell you. God deals with people as individuals, not just as a part of your group. And if your group is in the wrong, God provides escape from that group where you no longer have to be counted alongside them. Isn't that remarkable? Is there anything better than that? This is where liberation theology misses the point. They say, God is the God of the oppressed and the downtrodden. Yes, but is God not also the God of the oppressor? And the one that is caught up in these things and is so blinded by their sin that they're willing to strike down their fellow man? He is. And God, as we see in this passage here, where does the Bible say it? Right here. God does not hold national sins against individuals who repent. Oh, we need to hear that today. You can never escape your privilege. You can never escape where you were born. You can never escape this burden. God doesn't see it that way. Whether you're up or you're down, God says, I'm going to deal with you as a person. And if you come and, and follow me and you're willing to lose everything, we all have to lose everything to come to Jesus. You've all got to leave that behind. It doesn't matter. Well, you don't get to hold on and say, well, I'm a, I'm a proud Egyptian. No, you lose everything to come and follow him with my people. Wouldn't Paul even rebuke the Jews for this in Romans chapter 2? He says, y'all don't even get to hang on to your status as being God's chosen people and follow Christ. It's about dying to all that stuff. Not only that, but we're going to see that there are many Israelites who will not reach the promised land when many others will. Some of these Egyptians will make it. And some of these Israelites will not. God will strike them down. As Paul said in Romans 2, we studied this not long ago, verses 28 and 29. No one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul's reminding them, your, your cultural status doesn't save you. Being a Hebrew didn't save them on Passover night. The blood of the lamb covering their door is what saved them on Passover night. In the same way, being part of any cultural group anywhere is not enough to save you. You must be covered by the blood of the lamb. Our Passover lamb is available to anyone from any tribe, anywhere who will repent and call upon the name of the Lord. This is how God works. God, God's gospel is not just there to level the playing field. God's, God's gospel bridges the gap. You say, yeah, down with Egypt. But God goes, but these poor Egyptians, what am I going to do about them? Who cares? God cares. God totally cares. The distinctions between enemies start to fall away and love fills in the gap. And we don't like it when God shows mercy to our oppressors. Jonah didn't like it. You know, we have two prophecies from Jonah in the Bible. The first one is he prophesied that God was going to expand the borders of Israel and restore to them a city that they had lost. And it came true. That's the kind of prophecy that everybody likes. Yeah, up with Israel. The next one, God says, is I want you to go and preach to the Ninevites repentance. I want you to go to the empire that has oppressed your people and is levying tribute from you. The same people that take kings, strip them naked, put hooks in their nose and skin and drag them through the streets. The same nation that skins people alive and hangs their skins from the walls that everybody will know that Assyria is king. I want you to go and preach a message of repentance and forgiveness to them. I've told you this before. Let's put it another way. Let's say God raised up a Jewish prophet in Nazi Germany and said, go to Berlin and preach forgiveness. Jonah got on a ship and ran because he did not want to show forgiveness to those people. And the end of Jonah ends with God saying, Jonah, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of people in that city. Don't you care? Lord, you don't know what they've done to us. God goes, I know exactly what they've done to you, but I love them anyway. The Jews did not like it when Jesus invited Zacchaeus to stay at his house. 
Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Zacchaeus was a collaborator, man. The, the Romans had, had come and taken over Judea, and Zacchaeus said, how can I help, boys? I can make a little money on the side. He had gotten rich at the expense of his own people. And Jesus sees him up in that tree and says, I'm going to stay at your place. And Luke 19, 7 says the people were furious. Don't you understand, Jesus? You're here to deliver us from our oppressors. And Jesus says, isn't he a son of Abraham too? You could say, aren't we all children of Adam? Don't we all deserve the same salvation? God does not have favorites. Yes, Israel was his chosen people, but God never intended to save them at the exclusion of everybody else. He extends salvation to everybody. And in the church, we see that outworking where enemies come together under the banner of Christ. You don't see that anywhere else. Where nations who are at war with one another, the people of God can come together and say, we still serve the same Lord and we're brothers in Christ. Everyone is welcome. No one is turned away. I don't care who comes through that door. We will welcome them with all the love of Jesus Christ. You will swallow your distaste for certain people and you will extend to them love like God showed love to you. Because if they're willing to lose everything and call in the name of the Lord and put the blood of the Lamb over their life, who are we to turn them away? Amen? Let's read chapter 13. We'll go down to, verse, uh, down to verse 16 here. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. Leaven, of course, being yeast, what causes the bread to rise. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. More laws about the Passover especially focusing on the consecration of the firstborn here, which we have discussed a little bit already. He announces you're going to keep the seven-day festival in perpetuity once you reach Canaan. And this is exactly what we see when they get to Canaan, when they first cross the Jordan River. First thing they do is they stop and they celebrate Passover. And in verse 11, God insists on the sanctification. That's actually the word. The word consecrate or set apart. The sanctify to me. Declare as holy. The firstborn, man and beast as a memorial. And we see here that the donkey could be redeemed. It seems like what the idea is, is your donkey is probably important to you and it's, it's, it's essentially a tool, right? So you could have a lamb that could come in the place of, of a beast of burden like that. But all the others would be sacrificed. So this means when your cow had its first calf, that calf was sacrificed. Your goat had its first kid, that was sacrificed as well. And as for their own sons... They were to redeem them. Redeem, you know, it means to buy it back from the Lord. You went to the tabernacle or the temple. You offered a special offering to the Lord when your firstborn son was born, essentially paying the ransom to get your son back. We see this in the book of Luke, in Jesus' life. 
Luke 2, 22 through 24, gives us the best description we have of it in the Bible. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That's a reference to this passage here. And to offer a sacrifice, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And if it seems weird to offer pigeons to the Lord, you'll remember that wealth was not so much measured in coinage at this time, but in livestock, and pigeons were cheap. So, there you go. This is a reminder. It was a reminder that every firstborn animal or son, you had to go to the tabernacle or the temple and make a sacrifice. It was a way to constantly be reminding yourself why that God had delivered their firstborn and struck down the Egyptians' firstborn. And this is, of course, both times, or twice here, he says to your son, when he asks, what are we doing this for? Why do we do this? It's because the Lord delivered us out of the land of Egypt to keep the memory alive. And it certainly worked, hasn't it? Because we're still talking about it. And now later on in the Bible, the Levites are going to, it's going to say that the Lord chose them instead of the firstborn sons of the nations. What this is, is saying is, God, perhaps this is the way it was going to go, but there's going to be an incident with the Levites later on that will make them uh, unique in the Lord's eyes. But it seems like what God initially was planning to do was the firstborn sons will be the ones that serve in the temple, in the tabernacle for me. But then later on, the Lord will use the Levites instead to do that. But in the Bible, many times, you see that when somebody has a miracle child, when they have a firstborn son that, from somebody who couldn't, uh, couldn't have children, that boy would often be dedicated to the Lord. We have three clear examples of this in the Bible. Number one is Samuel, right? Samuel's mother, Hannah, could not have children. And she had the second wife, Penina, who made her life miserable. Well, she asked the Lord, he gives her Samuel, and she brings him to the tabernacle and leaves him there. Samson, same way. They were looking for a child, and God said, all right, but he's going to be my servant from the day he's born. John the Baptist, same way. And all three of them were Nazarites from birth, which meant they all had long hair and long beards, and they didn't, they didn't touch dead bodies, and that they didn't drink wine, and they didn't eat grapes and all that. So you can see this principle at work in Scripture is what I'm trying to get at here. But you know what is so cool? I want to bring this back to what we've been talking about. The Egyptians among them, the rest of the rabble, the rest of the mixed multitude would have this same heritage to pass on to their children too. Now listen, if you're an Egyptian and you're with these Hebrews, the Lord might not have spared your firstborn child, but the Lord says that they can be as one of the people, which means that they will be passing that same story on to their children as if they had been one of the Lord's people. That is so wonderful to see. God brings people together. He gave them a new heritage. Their heritage had been one of slavery, one of, one of abuse of a whole nation of people. And God goes, but from now on, you're going to talk to your kids like you were one of mine all along. That's what God does. He truly makes a new people. He brings people into the church and you don't have to spend your whole life worrying about what you did before. God rewrites your story. And now it becomes what we call a testimony. This is where I was, but I'm not there anymore by the grace of God. In Galatians 3.28, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you can put whatever categories you want there. There is no rich or poor. There is no black and white. There is no American or Mexican. In the church, we're all one in Christ Jesus. God has done through the gospel what a thousand seminars on diversity could never accomplish. God brings us together with something real, not just can't we all get along. Liberation theology proposes to forever hold what your ancestors did over your head and never let you forget it. That is not how God does it. In Christ, it says the former things are not brought to mind anymore. It's so unfortunate that, we're in, especially in the church, we're so divided by tribe. And like this goes so far beyond race or class. I, I mean, there's a number of things that separate people. You know, the first church of the pink carpet and the first church of the blue carpet. We were one church and then they wanted a blue carpet, we wanted pink, so we split the church over it. That happens, man. It happens all the time. 
when the Lord intends to bring us together. The only heritage that you have left is that of Christ Jesus. Your only history left is church history. And when you all share in that, that communion table, it's about having communion with the Lord. That's what that, that word means. But you also likewise are sharing in the same body of Christ. And thereby the Bible says we have communion with each other. The same Lord that is pouring out grace upon me has poured it out upon you. So these other differences don't matter in Christ. Only in Christ can you have that. That's what the Lord did for these Egyptians. He's showing mercy to the Egyptians and any other nation that was there. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkot and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So here we learn that they did not take the short route according to the way of the Philistines. Now the Philistines were a coastal people. We believe that uh, perhaps they had come from some of the Greek nations and city-states, although that's unconfirmed. But they were a people that lived along the coastline. So if you look at a map, you're going from Egypt to Israel, you would just hug the coast and get there real quickly. Now you might say, how did they end up in the wilderness? Well, it tells us right there. Some, I heard somebody one time making fun of the Bible. Well, if they were really going to the promised land, they wouldn't have gone that way. It, the Bible knows that and addresses that, my friend. God said, I'm not going to lead them this way because those Philistines are going to attack them. And that's not what I want for them first. So he says, I'm going to take them the long way, which is they're going to go south. And again, we're going to look at more details on exactly where and what the Red Sea was and, and the route they would have taken next week. And they march in ranks. I like that. that they're not just a, a mob of people moving, but they're, they're in battle formation. The Lord has, has made an army out of this, these people, which is exactly what Pharaoh was afraid of. Do you remember that? And now they, the Lord has done exactly that. They're carrying Joseph's bones. Very cool to think about this. Joseph, it says, was mummified in Egypt. So think of like King Tut's sarcophagus. That's what they're carrying. Something like that with Joseph in it. Genesis 50 verse 25. The second to last verse was when Joseph made them promise to take his bones back to Israel. They moved to Etham. Not exactly sure where that is uh, archaeologically. We know that it's just before what's called the Sinai wilderness. And there is the magnificent Shekinah glory of the Lord. The pillar of cloud and fire. I wonder when that first appeared, don't you? And I wonder what that moment was like. You know, the, the special effects are not great, but you look at the old Ten Commandments movie, I love it. It's like right when they take their first step out of Egypt into the wilderness, the pillar of fire appears. And I like to think that is exactly what happened. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Now, was this like a wispy cloud at daytime and then it turned to fire at night? No. Have you ever been out camping and... You, it's it's kind of daytime and it's, it's smoking and it doesn't look like there's really much going on. But then when it finally gets dark, you can see the coals really standing out real bright. And all that, there is a fire going on there. It's probably something like that. You've you got to think, guys, like a, like a flaming tornado here. This is not, you know, just a little will-o'-the-wisp that they're chasing. This I, I can imagine just the, the sky turning and twisting like it does when a tornado is about to come through, you know, and it just gets real dark real fast. And this thing descends to the earth. And there's a pillar of cloud. It's dark, thick darkness. And then when it starts to get nighttime, you say, wait a minute, there's something going on. No, this thing's on fire. Now, all the, all the cloud was the smoke coming out of the flame that was too bright to see in the desert. But now that it's dark, we realize that this is actually a light to guide us forward. It's magnificent. It's wonderful. It would have been terrifying. Later on, we're going to see this thing fight for them. I say this thing, it was the Lord, but it was his pillar of cloud, right? We'll fight for them when they get to the Red Sea. And this is what they're following as they leave Egypt. And we'll talk about that more at, at another time. But what matters right now, God was with his people. 
God didn't just say, all right, get on out of here. He said, I will be with you. Didn't he tell Moses that over and over again? I will be with you. And you can imagine all the Egyptian officials watching them leave, and then here comes this giant pillar of cloud and fire, and they go, okay, I don't think we're going to try and call them back this time <laughs> because God is with them. And that's exactly what we need to know about this, the whole story of the Exodus. And it's really not finished. There's more to come. But this has been a deliberate work of God. And this is something else. Again, we're talking about this. That liberation theology misses. This was not a political machination to achieve a political goal. This was a supernatural work of God casting down one nation and raising up another. So it's all right to look at this as a template if by that you mean God does not approve of the oppression of people. But this is in another sense something you can't duplicate unless God so wills it. God is the one that raises up and casts down nations. It was his timing. It was his power. In fact, God waited hundreds of years because he was waiting for another wicked nation to repent. They didn't, but that's what he was doing. So these people that want to try and use the gospel as a cloak for their social and political goals are really barking up the wrong tree. You've got to strip the scriptures of everything wonderful and read it in a very specific, predetermined way to get there. But that's not how we study the Bible. We look at what the Bible says and believe that. It's all by the Lord. As the Lord said in Zechariah 4, verse 6, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It was the Holy Spirit that made this liberation possible. It was the Holy Spirit who brings salvation in his own good timing. It is the Holy Spirit who built the church for Christ. So these folks miss that. He's not just talking about political freedom or redistribution of wealth. It is liberation from slavery to slavery. It is submission to God, slavery to Christ, by His Holy Spirit. And when the Lord does something, it can't be broken. Man's work is harsh. When we decide we're going to bring about justice, we become harsh. And our work breaks easily, but what God builds lasts forever. And you know, a lot of these folks, and there's no political side that has a, has a monopoly on this, although it certainly seems to be more vocal on, on the left these days. God is the one who determines what's going to happen in history. And when the Bible lays out his ways, how he wants to do it, how we as people are to conduct ourselves in the meantime, his methods for addressing the wrongs in the world, many people look at that and say, I don't agree with it and I don't want it. To which I would say, who are you to tell God you disagree with what he said? God is taking into account every person in the entire world, not just your little group. He's got to consider everybody, and he does. Many people can't handle the fact that God raises up and God tears down nations. So that nation should never have been given power. Instead, what well, you ought to step back like Habakkuk and say, God, why them? Because God is the one that raised them up. God gives long space for repentance. And we love that when it applies to us. The minute it starts applying to our enemies, we don't like it so much, do we? God, when are you going to smite them, people? And God goes, I don't know. I still think they might have a chance at repentance. They'll never repent, Lord. And he goes, yeah, that's a lot of people said that about you, too. People don't like that. God urges the oppressed to be faithful even in their oppression. That's not fair to ask them to do that. God goes, I'm less concerned with the structure, I'm more concerned with the heart. That comes from the New Testament and the Old. We can't just dismiss it because we don't like it. And in fact, when other people take these things and they try to apply them to categories that God calls sin, people say the homosexual community needs to be liberated as well. The Bible comes in and God says that is not in the same category. That is a sin and it needs to be dealt with. And then when people come across that, they either say, all right, Lord, then you've got to change my heart. Or they say, then who needs the Bible anyway? We're the ones that interpret scripture. We've got to determine what the Bible means. We know it needs to be done. So take what we need from Jesus and get out of here. People don't like it when the Bible teaches us that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Caesar are two different kingdoms. 
They came to Jesus. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Should I go there? Why not? Should we pay taxes to King George? Jesus said, send me a coin. Who's on that coin? Render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. Render to God that which belongs to God. Well, I don't think I can take that. It was after Jesus said that that these people got together and said, we need to kill him. We need to nail him to a tree. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? They said, we have no king but Caesar. If Jesus is not interested in looking at things our way, then we're done with him. If the church of Jesus Christ doesn't see fit to rescue Western culture in the United States of America from what's coming after it, then maybe we should find a new way to move forward and leave all this behind. If the church of Jesus Christ doesn't see a way to tear down the oppressive structures of the world, then it's time to leave the church behind. This is always being said. Nothing's new. We cannot let the world dictate to us what justice is. They don't know. Amen. The Lord knows. Or what love is. Or certainly what the gospel is. We are in submission to Christ. We're not part of their battles. We're like the man that stood before Joshua and he said, are you for us or for our enemies? He says, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. He says, no, I, I don't join your team. You join my team. And Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So you're saying we should just ignore the real world? No, I'm saying you're ignoring the real world. Oh, what, the devil? Yes, the devil and his angels, his demons that are after you and after your soul and don't care who's president. They care about the souls that are dying and going to hell and seeing that the Lord hurt a little bit more every day. The Lord raised up an army of people called the church to fight that battle because nobody else was there to fight that battle. And we've got to be dogged in this. We're following the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, not the back and forth and ebb and flow of the nations. Are you being led by the Holy Spirit? You've been liberated. You've been saved. Are you wandering in the wilderness? Or are you letting him lead you to the promised land? Because he's the only one that can get you there. I'm speaking passionately because I'll tell you, I, last year I warned about this. And I warned a couple times. And then earlier this year, I warned about it again. I'm watching it creep, you guys. It's coming into the church. People, I've had it with thinking through things spiritually. And we're being told that we don't care or that we're cowards or that we're weak or that we don't understand what the Bible's really about. And the church is being pulled in two different directions. And I warned about this. It's happening much more and more. And as it seems like the one side is starting to lose steam, the other side is gaining steam. And I hear people say things about the church that they ought not to say. Saying things about the Jews that they ought not to say. Saying things about the Bible they ought not to say. All in the name of patriotism. You must watch out. Because the devil is insidious and he will use the most noble thing to turn your heart away from Christ. The Christian stands apart from those things because we know that there's a bigger battle to be fought. We're following the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. We're not following the world. And Jesus said, don't be surprised when they hate you. They hated me. And they're going to hate you too. They're going to say that I didn't understand the real struggles of the day. They're going to say that about you too. Sadducees, the ultra Liberal, interpret the Bible however you want crowd. The Pharisees, the crazy, tight, conservative, read the Bible so conservatively and so traditionally, you miss the point of it, people. They all hated Jesus. The only thing that could bring them together was a hatred of the Son of God. And you are standing on his team. That's why Peter said, don't think it a strange thing at the fiery trial which comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile you and curse you and say all kinds of evil about you for my name's sake. For so they did to the prophets that went before you. He said, beware when all men speak well of you, because that's what they said to the false prophets. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, 
Jesus indeed said, quoting from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The book of Exodus shows us what God thinks about slavery and oppression. He hates it. Don't be afraid to admit that because you're afraid your political opponent might get one up on you. But it's also a picture of the love and the salvation that is offered by a merciful God. Your favor before the Lord is not determined by your social status, but by a heart that is true to Him. And the Bible shows us that the best way to work out social change is through faithful obedience to the Lord and contentment in His timing. It has been proven and it will be steadfast. This is how we are set free. Even in our bondage, you can be free in Christ Jesus. This is how you bridge the gap between the different groups that are at odds with each other. And this is how we gain true unity in the church and it's how we find the will of God to move forward. Christianity is absolutely a savior narrative because we are all in sinners need of salvation. And people like that who are led by God's Holy Spirit turn the world upside down.